0: Hear the words from Revelation 2, verse 17. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. I'll give the sacred manna to every conqueror. I'll also give a clear, smooth stone inscribed with your new name, your secret new name. And now, good and gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this room be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Tim and I were given a wonderful little book years ago, shortly after we were married. It's a collection of some of the world's most outrageous names. Um, I don't know how you feel about your name. Uh, maybe you love your name, uh, or maybe you think your parents should be prosecuted. Uh, if you're not especially fond of your name, maybe you'll feel a little better when you hear some of the following doozies from this little book. Like the schoolteacher from Spencer, Iowa, whose first name was Ivan last name was Odor, or Solomon Gomorrah from Brooklyn, New York, or T. Fudd Pucker Tucker from Bountiful, Utah, E. Pluribus Eubanks, a longshoreman from San Francisco, or, and this was my favorite, the New Mexico man whose last name was Daub, and his first name was Zippity-Doo, Are you feeling a little better about your name this morning? I didn't know this, but apparently in the United States alone, every year over 50,000 people change their names in addition to those who change it when they marry. Uh, Tim and I knew a couple in seminary, Dora and Ernie. Last time we heard from them, they had become Whitney and Eric. For many people, changing a name is a way of saying... I'm making a new start with my life. It's kind of great. You know, God has been known to change people's names from time to time. It's almost as if God were saying, I think you need a new start. I see things in you no one else sees, so I'm changing your name. And so Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. And then we come to this strange little verse today in Revelation. Now, I have to say this out loud for a number of reasons. I almost never preach from just one verse of Scripture, uh, let alone from a a verse from from Revelation. Uh, The Revelation of John was actually written to be read out loud and to be read and heard all at once. Fred Craddock said that the best way to begin to understand uh, what Revelation has to say to the church today, and I would love for us to do this sometime here, is to gather in a worship setting, begin with some time for prayer and praise, like the hymn we mentioned this morning, the one we sang, and then we would invite a good reader or several to read the whole text, the whole of Revelation, out loud without interruption or comment. It takes about 75 minutes. I think we ought to try it sometime. So Revelation is meant to be read as a whole, but I do love this particular image in the verse I read just now from Revelation 2, and especially today, when we're going to gather not long from now to name out loud some of the ways in which God's Spirit has been moving in this community of faith the past year, I wonder if maybe God has a word for us in this little pearl of a text. In it, John of Patmos, a pastor, prophet, poet, who wrote his vision near the end of the first century, shows us a picture of Jesus talking to believers who were living in a time of terrible persecution. Early in the second century, a governor in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, whose name was Pliny, wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan, When Pliny arrived in the area from Rome to begin governing that that place, he found some charges against Christians that were already on the court docket, and it was his job to preside and to render judgments. And here is a fragment from his letter to the emperor, written just 20 years after the writing of Revelation, that illustrates beautifully the precarious situation of a religious minority at the mercy of suspicious neighbors and a biased power in the state. This is what he wrote. I have handled those who've been denounced to me as Christians as follows. I've asked them whether they were Christians. Those who responded affirmatively, I have asked a second and third time under threat of death penalty. If they persisted in their confession, I had them executed. Others who labor under the same delusion but were found to be Roman citizens, I have designated to be sent to Rome. And so in Revelation, John of Patmos shows us the risen Christ delivering a message to these suffering believers. And at the conclusion of his words to them, he adds this promise, to those of you who conquer, to those of you who overcome, I will give a clear, smooth stone. Other translations say a white stone inscribed with your new name, your secret new name. Isn't that mysterious? This picture we're given, followers of Christ arriving at last at the end of a long journey and finding Jesus himself waiting there, holding in his hand, of all things, a stone. And on that stone, a special name, a secret name that no one else knows. At First Baptist Church, we're big on learning each other's names, which is why we try to wear name tags um, every time we gather. Well, this text today shows Christ holding and handing out name tags of sorts, only these name tags aren't so that everyone else will know who you are. But so that you yourself will discover at last who you are. And according to this text, your name tag happens to be a white or clear stone. Back in the first century, in Greek courts, if a jury wanted to acquit someone of a crime, they'd put a white pebble in a box. A white stone, a clear stone, meant you are free to go, you are not guilty. And at banquets and celebrations and sporting events, stones like this were also used as tickets for for admission. And so a white stone, a clear stone from Christ is freedom, not guilty, and a white stone is welcome. Come on in. And on that stone is written a name. I want you to think about your name for a minute and the hold that it has on you. You can be at a football game, at a party, a street corner, some other noisy place, but if you hear your name being called, you stop, you look up. Your name holds a certain power over you. Only you know all the memories and feelings, the pride and humiliations, the happiness and hurt wrapped up in your name. But even better than you know, Christ understands even more. That's what our text says. The name I give, no one else knows. Listen, the world does not know your name. It doesn't. The world can't give you a name. The world tries to name you. The world may call you winner, leader, brain, boss superstar. But you know that's not the sum of who you are. The world may call you stupid, failure, nobody, loser. And maybe sometimes even a part of you whispers, yeah, that's me, all right. But the one who created you and called you knows that the world and even you yourself know almost nothing about who you really are. Only God knows completely. There will come a day when we will know. There'll come a day when you'll finally understand who you are, and I'm finally going to know who I am. The Bible promises this, and it's beautiful. And let's not miss this today. Our text today tells us that this gift is given, quote, when we have overcome. When you have conquered, I'll give you a new name, says Jesus. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was speaking to people in the first century, and in ways that are mysterious to us, Jesus continues to speak to us in these words today. And so what does it mean for us? And I would say, who can say with perfect clarity? But but these words do suggest, for one thing, that you and I are not going to know all the things we're supposed to know until we have run our course down here, however brief or long that may be. As long as we're living in a wounded world, we're not going to understand everything about our name. And so it's okay to feel confused sometimes about who we are, and I think we can let ourselves feel even a little peace about that. Even in Christ, we won't fully learn our names down here. But that's not to say that we can't start learning. And here is the way that will lead us one day to understanding everything we long to know. And it's this. Be faithful to what you know of Christ. Walk in the way of Jesus. Study his steps. Love what he loves especially when it's not easy. Follow when it's hard to follow. Show love when it's difficult to show love. Forgive when it's the last thing you want to do. Speak out in behalf of vulnerable people you don't even know and may never meet. Give to God what's costly to you. Pray when you don't feel like praying. And when you do, don't be surprised to see yourself coming alive. This, by the way, is how churches come alive too. It doesn't happen nearly enough because it's astonishingly easy to become rigid and fixed in our assumptions about what it means to be church. But when a congregation comes to the place of saying, Lord Jesus Christ, whatever you want for us is what we want, you are the potter, we are the clay. We put everything on the table. Every memory of the past, every aspiration for the future, every idol of our own making, we offer it all to you. We hold nothing back from you. Friends, that's when a church starts to come alive. To those who conquer, I will give a new name, a new identity. And it's not that we have to prove how deserving we are of our new identity by overcoming. It's just that we're living in such a mangled world, and we're all so broken and fractured. We're not simply going to happen upon our new identity by chance. It's going to require our making some deliberate choices for faithfulness, for love. And while none of us can fully know what being faithful to Christ will bring us at the end of the journey, it does appear that one of the most beautiful gifts waiting for us, waiting for you and for me, is a brand new name. I can't help but think of one recurring scene in Catherine Stockett's beautiful novel, The Help. Set in Mississippi in 1962, one of the main characters is Abilene a black woman who works as a maid and who is in the process of raising her 17th white child. Abilene is wise and compassionate and utterly devoted to the little girl, May Mobley. The child doesn't receive much positive attention from her mother, so Abilene quietly, subversively plants blessing deep in the soil of that child's heart. And every now and then, Abilene will cup her face in her hands and look her in the eye and say, May Mobley, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. She's giving that child a new name. Friends, what if when you have walked with Christ all the way to death, What if he turns and asks you, what is your name? Lord, my name is guilty. And he will say, no, because now you wear my name, and from now on, your name is blameless. What is your name? Lord, my name is grief. And Christ, wiping the last tear from your eye, will whisper, not anymore, because you wear my name now, and now your name is joy what's your name? Lord, my name is tired and broken, and he will raise you to your feet again and say, nope, that name will never be yours again, because your name now is everlasting life, and you're going to mount up with wings as eagles. You're going to run and not be weary. You're going to walk and not faint. We're about to be invited in moments from now to Christ's own table. First, though, We're invited into the gift of silence in which Christ is also present. And so I'd like to ask something of you. I'd like to ask you to close your eyes, if you will, and let yourself become very still in your body and in your mind. Now, please ask yourself this question What name have I been wearing lately? Maybe you wear more than one. Maybe it's a name your classmates have given you, or your colleagues, or your family. Maybe it's a name you've given yourself. Perhaps the name is anxious or angry, helper, loser, winner, provider, performer, stoic, rescuer. Maybe your name is overwhelmed or joyful, abandoned, grieving. And you know in your heart that none of these names gets it completely right. And in the silence, in just a moment, today would be also a good day to ask, what name has our church been wearing? And in these moments of stillness, ask to begin to recognize and understand the name the Beloved means for you to wear. The name Christ means for us to wear as a congregation. And then let's all ask for the courage to begin living into that name.